The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. All right, uh, it's Colossians three twelve through seventeen. Uh, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So Scott had asked me to talk about music and singing. Not a, not a small topic, right? Uh, in light of the forum that we're going to have this afternoon, which I hope you all will attend. I'm going to be there, um, 4 o'clock out at Christ Press Central. Um, I, I was thinking about, you know, how do you even talk about music and the Bible and faith and why all this stuff matters? And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about my friend Charlie Peacock, who many of you probably know. He's been around here for a long time. Uh, he's one who's helped me understand the importance of music and how to think Christianly about all life. And I, I, I thought... One of the things I always love about him is every time I've heard him speak about whatever topic it is, I always come away saying, man, that's, there's more to that than I ever thought. That's such a, a bigger way of thinking about that thing. I used to think of it like here, and now I listen to him, and now it's like this. I'll give you an example. Uh, I heard him one time talk about prayer, and he just used this little simple phrase. He says, prayer is talking to our Heavenly Father about matters of mutual concern. Love that. It's not just about Christian things. It's about matters of mutual concern, which includes everything. I hope that today I'll be able to help us do that a little bit with regard to singing and music. Because I do think sometimes we think of singing as the warm-up. You know, we even had to do an extra song uh, to spare, save, you know, fill some time when the preacher was looking for a parking space. Um, we, we sometimes think of music as secondary in the church. Even in the culture, we tend to think of it as, you know, for entertainment purposes, whatnot. But when we come to the Bible, we actually find that singing really matters. Why? Have you read the passage yet? Or do I do that? Have you read, right? Colossians 3. It's a fascinating passage. Paul talks here about letting the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Now, as we get into this little text here in Colossians 3, I hope you'll come to see that almost every phrase in this passage is bigger than we probably think it is. Paul talks here about the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And let me just tell you, I think for most of us, we think of the peace of Christ way too small. We think of the peace of Christ ruling our hearts as generally being about warm, peaceful feelings in our hearts. 
Anybody go to the Eagles concert at Bridgestone a few weeks ago? Right, of course. You, you think about this. Peaceful, easy feeling. As a matter of fact, when I was in high school, I was in a Christian group where we would sing the hymn Amazing Grace to the tune of the Eagles' Peaceful, Easy Feeling. And to make it worse, we would actually sing the chorus from the Eagles in between the verses of the hymn. Right? Saying, you know, this is, and we used to sing it at, at RUF back in the days in Vanderbilt when it first started. We really did. Here's the problem. The peace of Christ that Paul's talking about here is not just a peaceful, easy feeling. Actually, we get some help to try to understand what Paul's saying when we look at the way he uses the same idea over in his letter to the Ephesians. Now, why would I look at Ephesians? Well, it's because Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians basically in one sitting. There's a lot of ideas that are parallel ideas. He may develop one a little more in one letter and then in the other letter develop a different idea. And when you go look at this idea of the peace of Christ ruling, it actually is more central in the theme of Ephesians chapter two. And there we read that what Paul is talking about is about how there's this great mystery that was hidden but has now been revealed. That's actually what mystery means in the Bible. When the Bible uses the term mystery, it doesn't mean something that's still mysterious. It actually means something that was hidden, but has now been revealed. That's what the Greek word means. We lose that some in the, in the translation to the English, but what Paul says, what is this great mystery that was hidden, but's now been revealed? And it's this, that God from before the foundation of the world planned to bring peace where there was enmity where there was warfare. First and foremost, peace between God and man. And that peace was wrought by Christ in his work on the cross. God didn't just send Jesus to die so that we could say, oh, I guess he really does love us. No, Paul tells us that Christ came to bring peace. The two that were opposed to each other now made one. But he says, I also mean that in another sense, that this peace that God has wrought through Christ between God and man also brings together Jews and Gentiles who hate each other. That as God reconciles us to himself, he also reconciles Jews and Gentiles to each other as they're reconciled to God. Think of like a triangle, right? And that's what Paul is saying. The peace of Christ should never be reduced to a peaceful, easy feeling. It's first and foremost in the Bible, an objective reality. Something that God has done through Christ. When Paul talks here about the peace of Christ, he means the peace that Christ has wrought for us. As he develops this idea, it's pretty interesting. Paul talks about it's the thing we are to be thankful for because it's our only hope. Because this peace that Christ has wrought was solely by God's grace. As a matter of fact, it excludes boasting because it's a peace that Christ has wrought, not one that we could work or activate ourselves. As a matter of fact, in chapter 2, as Paul develops this idea in Ephesians, he says that, do you want to know what grace is according to the Bible? It's very simple. Paul says grace is God making dead people alive. It's not God saying, hey, you need a help? I can give you a helping hand. 
No, it's God making dead people alive. You were dead, Paul says. But now God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. It is by grace you have been saved so that you wouldn't boast. And why does that matter? Well, boasting is what keeps us from God and from each other. So Paul talking here, you know, there's no, the idea that we're to dwell in unity is integral to the idea that Christ has wrought peace. Because the things that keep us from dwelling in unity are the things that we boast in. Whether personally or even our cultural things that we boast in. And the way we look down on others. But the idea, the true gospel, that God has made dead people alive so that they couldn't boast is the only hope for bringing people together. And that's why Paul says, this is what needs to rule in your hearts. Now let me talk about this word hearts. Because we tend to think of the heart as the place where your emotions are. That's why we think of this verse in Colossians as being about peaceful feelings in your heart. But in the Bible, your heart is the source of everything you are. It's more like where your decisions come from than where your feelings come from. In the Bible, your feelings come from your bowels, which is why we don't have biblical Valentine's cards, right? It's true. So when you read in the Bible, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, it's not talking about having peaceful, easy feelings. It's not talking about that at all. It's actually saying at the center of your being, at the center of everything you are and everything you want to be, let the peace that God has wrought through Christ rule over your feelings, over social taboos, even over your cultural distinctives that make you think you're better than somebody else. The peace that Christ has wrought. You were dead, you've now been made alive, so you can't boast about anything. May that rule. Have you ever heard the phrase that you need to be gospel-driven? You heard that idea? Sometimes we'd use that phrase, we'll throw it around. That's what Paul's talking about. May the gospel, the truth of what God has done through Christ, rule. But here's what's interesting. When he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, the your there is not singular, it's plural. So what Paul is saying is not only must the peace of Christ rule in your hearts individually, it must rule in us as a community. What Paul's saying here is that we need to be a gospel-driven community. The news of what God has done in Christ, the gospel, must rule in our corporate center of our being as a people of God. And so how is that going to happen? Well, Paul says the message of Christ has to dwell among you, again, plural, richly. Now, the message of Christ, some translations say, others say the word of Christ. I think the best way to think of it is closer to the message of Christ or the word about Christ. It's a parallel phrase that means the gospel. That's why it's a parallel to verse 15. 15 and 16 are saying the same thing. Let the peace of Christ, let the message of Christ dwell among you gospel-driven community, and let it dwell among you, plural, richly. And how is it going to dwell among us richly? Paul says you need to sing. Now, that's the place where it seems like a left turn, right? Because we tend to think, well, if, if Paul says that we need the word of Christ, the gospel, to dwell in our community richly, what do we need? Well, we need better teaching. We need to memorize the Bible. We need to know our theology. All those are awesome things. 
But that's actually not what Paul says here. He says, you need to sing if the word about Christ is going to dwell among you, your community, richly. And we, we can kind of scratch our heads a little bit because we don't think of music as being that big a deal. Certainly not vital for the gospel to dwell in our community. But that's what Paul says. Why? What's the big deal about singing? I think we get a clue from that great church father from North Africa, St. Augustine. St. Augustine said, he who sings prays twice. He who sings prays twice. In other words, singing intensifies whatever you're doing, whether it's praise or lament. There is something about singing that takes it to a different dimension, a different intensity than mere thinking and mere speaking. Why might that be? Well, it's because God created us not as just brains on sticks, like Jamie Smith likes to say. I love that phrase. We tend to think of ourselves as brains on sticks, as basically thinking people. I think, therefore I am, right? Descartes said. But we're so much more. What it means to be human is that you're more than just a brain on a stick. And singing actually ties into that because God has created you as an embodied being. And Christianity is not just about things you think in your head. It's not just about ideas. It's not just about abstract philosophy. It's about embodied truth. Singing reminds us that we're embodied people. You can't sing without it involving your body. The sound starts down here and it resonates. Isn't that a wonderful word? Resonates. That means it sets off sympathetic vibrations in your body. And then it comes through your mouth, is shaped, and it goes out. Not only do you hear it, but everybody around you hears it. Singing is so much more than just thinking things in your head. It's an embodied experience that involves your whole community. And God has said that is vital because Christianity needs to be something that gets into the deepest parts of us. It's embodied and it builds a sense of community. You know, if you worked for IBM in the 1960s, you started every workday singing the company song. We don't do that much anymore. About the only places that you sing together, maybe at a pub, at least if you're in the UK. I don't know if they ever sing much. You do the beer and hymn sing sometimes. People do that. Trying to capture a little of this. You sing it at concerts. A lot of people sang at the Eagles concert, every word. You might sing Rocky Top, maybe. I don't know. Do they sing at Vanderbilt football games? I don't know. I've never been to one. <laughs> I, I hear they don't sing too much. Um, <laughs> just, just, you know, just something I've heard. Um, but we don't sing very much. I think sometimes, actually, when, when my students invite their friends who've never been to church to come to an RUF meeting, how do they even describe what we do? It must sound so weird. Oh yeah, come to this meeting on Tuesday night, we're gonna sing a bunch of songs with weird language, and then some guy's gonna get up and talk about the Bible. Like it's just bizarre. But you know what? It's a profoundly formative experience for Christians. It's actually a formative experience. Here's one of the most important things we need to think about. We think about singing, we think about worship, is it is shaping and molding us that what we sing actually expresses the DNA of what we're about, right? 
It's so important to understand this. When we sing a song like, like the one that um, Brett just did, Thou Lovely Source of True Delight. Do you know the lady who wrote that? Her, her name is Ann Steele. And I discovered her hymns pretty early on when I was working with college students about 20 years ago over at Belmont. And I remember thinking like, you know, we've got these songs that we're singing that are honestly lying to my students about the normal Christian life. Like, I'm trying to tell them that God is okay with brokenness. I'm trying to preach that. I'm trying to show them places in the Bible. But the songs we're singing are undermining what I'm trying to teach them. Because we're singing songs that are basically saying to them, as long as you feel Jesus all the time, then he loves you. And so we're always trying to proclaim to Jesus how much we love him and how much we feel him. And we're not resting in the fact that he loves us even when we don't feel love for him. And, and I wanted our, our group to be a place where that was real and true and that that was at the center of their being. And I had to find better songs to sing. And I remember when I found this lady, Ann Steele, like we sang that verse or, or you, you know, listen to Brett sing that verse. Listen to this again. It says, um, verse three, tis here, and she means in the Bible, whenever my comforts droop and sin and sorrow rise, Thy love, your love, with cheering beams of hope, my fainting heart supplies. That's good. Like, that's a good testimony. But look where she goes next in verse 4. But ah, exclamation point. And the exclamation point is hers. She edited her own collection of hymns, so all the punctuation is hers. But ah, exclamation point. Too soon, the pleasing scene. In other words, seeing your smile in the word is clouded over with pain. My gloomy fears rise dark between. That means between me and you. And I again complain. See, it's formative to sing songs like that. Where you don't have to pretend that everything's fine when you come into church. We never want Christ's presence to be a place where you feel like you have to pretend everything is fine to feel welcome here. And part of the way we express that are the songs that we sing. We need songs that are more honest about struggle and more explicit about the gospel. And you see that even in this passage, right? Paul talks about the need to be unified, which presupposes that he needs to talk about it. That everything in this church at Colossia is not as it should be. Because the gospel needs to dwell at the center of their community. And that means you need to sing. So it, it presupposes that there's brokenness happening in their midst. And what Paul says, what you really need is the gospel to dwell more explicitly in you through singing because we're human beings. And we live in a world that God has created with all kinds of God-glorifying potential. Music is just one of those things. Uh, Psalm 19 talks about how the heavens declare God's glory. You really could say that the creation is preaching at us about God's glory. What does that mean? What well, has profound implications for thinking about music and culture? What it means is everything that is, is stamped with meaning. Everything that God has made is declaring his glory. It's stamped with meaning. It's built into it. That means everything that human beings use to make culture, whether it's art or music, furniture, whatever, this building, everything used is stamped with meaning. 
That, things, that means that singing matters not just in the church, but in the world. Music matters because it's made from the stuff that God has stamped with meaning. It's never trivial. You know, sometimes people think about pop culture and they say, oh, you shouldn't even bother with that stuff because it's either trivial, some people say, or some people say it's dangerous. To which I say, well, it can't be both. Because if it's dangerous, it's not trivial. And if it's trivial, how dangerous is it? But in fact, what God says is it's, it's bigger than that. It's a way that human beings, whether they believe in Jesus or not, are dialoguing with him. They're interacting with what God is saying, whether they realize it or not. And here's what's remarkable. At the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, we find that that dialogue finally comes to a grand glorious consummation where the kings of all the earth bring their glory, bring their splendor into the heavens city. And you know what else it says in Revelation 21? Nothing unclean will be in that city. So what do you think? The kings of all the earth and their cultural splendor are going to be in the heavenly city and they're going to be clean. It speaks there of God not just saving souls but redeeming cultures and the stuff that he's made. Now I don't know exactly how that works out but it means that music and culture matters. So it shouldn't be strange to us that singing should matter in the church because God doesn't want people in the church just to be sort of these weird people that are disembodied and less than human. What does it mean to be human? It means that we sing, that we sing. In the culture of the Bible, people sang all the time. Everything was accompanied with music. In our day and age, we've sort of set music off to the side as being about mere entertainment. Or sometimes we coordinate off in the concert hall and it's about trying to lift your spirits. Music is so much bigger than that. It always has been, it always will be. Now we're gonna, I wanna just say one, one little thing about um, singing in the church because there's this fascinating thing that happened. And it, and, and it continually is, is a, I think, a concern that we need to be aware of. In AD 365, A.D. 365, the Council of Laodicea banned congregational singing. Did you know that? In 365, the church decided that normal people in the pews were not allowed to sing. The only people that would be able to sing in church from then on were trained choirs of priests. And that lasted quite a long time. When the Reformation begins, do you understand, people had not been singing congregational for a thousand years. What worship was like throughout the Middle Ages was spectator worship, where people walked in and they kind of tried to see what was going on up there. We don't ever want it to be that way. How far removed is that from what Paul says about singing to one another, with one another? But the, the, the church made some real bad moves in this regard. John Huss, in the uh, 1300s, is actually the guy who reintroduces congregational singing. You know what happened to him? He got burned at the stake at the Council of Constance in 1315. And as he was burning, he sang the Te Deum, an ancient Christian hymn. His followers basically hid out in the hills and kept singing those songs. We actually have a Hussite hymn book that predates Luther nailing the 95 theses onto the church door. You know, a lot of people think that the Reformation started in 1517 when Luther nailed those theses on the church door because we think that Christianity is all about ideas. <laughs> well, you know what? It's been well said by Robin Lever, who's a church 
historian and Lutheran scholar that while the Reformation may have started in 1517, it actually didn't really take root until 1523. You know what happened in 1523? The first Lutheran hymn book. It had eight hymns in it. And Luther in the preface says, I'm issuing now a call for other German poets to help me noise the gospel abroad because we need singing. Luther and Calvin came into context where people hadn't been singing for a thousand years. Did they make some mistakes in how they tried to implement it? Sure. We all do, actually. But singing can never be peripheral because we're human because we live in a world where singing and music matters because it's made from the stuff that God has stamped with meaning. So listen, as Christians, we don't have to explain away when some song written or sung by somebody who's not a Christian speaks powerfully to us. You know why? Because they're dialoguing with God whether they realize it or not. And I find sometimes they hear things that Christians filter out because God's speaking to them too. He's speaking to all of us. But in particular in the church, we need songs that are honest about suffering and explicit about the gospel. Now, we're going to sing one. Let us love and sing in wonder. And you know, I love this hymn by John Newton that we're going to sing coming up here. Um, he wrote Amazing Grace. So you might know John Newton from that. But this is also one of his great hymns. And I love that he says, let us love and sing and wonder. Wonder reminds me of what my friend Charlie Peacock always reminds me. That whatever it is that I'm thinking about, it's bigger than that. That's what wonder is. We sing so that because we see that the gospel is bigger. And at one level, all you can really do is sing and wonder. Um, one of the greatest verses ever in hymnody, verse 4 of this hymn. Let us wonder, grace and justice, join and point to mercy store. That means the storehouse of mercy. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. That's a song about the gospel being rooted at the heart of you are. Like, we sing these songs, honestly, so we can go out into the world and say we don't believe your lies anymore. Justice smiles at me, not because I'm a good person, not because I've loved God so well or dealt with my children so well or loved my spouse so well. God loves me, justice smiles at me because Jesus lived and died in my place. And when I go out into the world, I need that to be richly dwelling in me if I would glorify God, enjoy him forever. So we sing, we sing. Let's stand together.